forgiveness is always more beneficial to the one who's forgiving than the one being forgiven. Here's where a lot of people also trip themselves up. They'll say, oh, but do you know what she did to me? Do you know what he said? Do you know what he tried to do? And I often find that when people say to me, Rabbi, I I can't forgive her. What they're really saying is, I can't forget. They confuse forgiveness with amnesia. Forgiveness does not require amnesia of us. Quite the contrary. How does one forget something like that? You can't. That's not a reasonable aspiration, but you can forgive. They're different. And when most people say, I can't forgive, what they're really saying is, I can't forget. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Steve Leader, the senior rabbi of the Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. As the senior rabbi, Steve Leader serves over 2,700 families that comprise this prestigious synagogue. Recently, he also led a $225 million campaign to develop the congregation's historic urban campus encompassing an entire city block. The campus also includes a new building by Pritzker Prize-winning architect Rem Kulhas. In addition to his many duties at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, Rabbi Leader is a regular contributor and or guest on the Today Show, Time, Los Angeles Times, and USA Today. Rabbi Leader's Torah commentaries are read weekly by over 50,000 people, and he has written three successful books, The Extraordinary Nature of Ordinary Things, More Money Than God, Living a Rich Life Without Losing Your Soul, and More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms. We also have to recognize Steve Leader for being named by Newsweek Magazine not once, but twice as one of the 10 most influential rabbis in America. Listen in for some great takeaways about living a deeper, richer life, and we're not talking about money here, and how suffering can be transformative when approached with the right mindset. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the awesome pleasure of being with Steve Leader, the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles. Thanks for joining us today, Rabbi Leader. I'm so happy to be with you, Larry. Yeah, it's great to see you and great to chat with you. So I want to give our listeners an idea of who you are, what you're about, and your path to becoming the rabbi Steve Leader. So can you give our listeners a little history lesson, if you will? Sure, of course. So I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis called St. Louis Park, which was affectionately referred to as St. Jewish Park. If you ever saw the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, that movie is a hallucination of my childhood. <laughs> they grew up a few blocks away from me, and it was this amazing little incubator. My neighborhood was maybe a five-square-block neighborhood in which virtually every family was a Jewish family. Now, I didn't know at the time that the reason we were clustered the way we were is that we weren't welcome elsewhere. I didn't realize that as a kid. All I knew was that I had a lot of people around me who had similar backgrounds and experiences. 
Sure. I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad and my uncle owned a junkyard called Leader Brothers Iron and Metal. I worked there as a kid and I worked there every summer for most summers of my childhood. And I was one of five kids. So my parents had all five of us before they were 30. My mother was 17. My dad was 18 when they got married, which is a long way of saying my parents were kind of done parenting by the time I came around. (laughs) And I think I was raised by wolves, but I was really raised by my three older sisters. And because my father did not go to college and grew up on public assistance as a kid, by the way, Jews were the second largest group on welfare in the 1930s in America, Wow! just behind blacks. So most Jews were desperately poor in the 30s and 40s in America. And so in my family, every creative pursuit was dismissed as frivolous. And my dad said to me, I think it was my junior year of college, said, Steve, the way I see it, your career choices are you can go to law school and run Leader Brothers, or you cannot go to law school and run Leader Brothers. Those are my choices. (laughs) (laughs) You want to be an actor? Frivolous. You want to be a writer? Frivolous. You want to be a musician? Frivolous. Okay? All frivolous. Except for one thing in life where creativity was encouraged and respected was acceptable in, frankly, in my parents' constellation of values. And that was the synagogue. That was the one place they would drive me to. That was the one place where they didn't ask any questions. What are you doing? Who are you doing with it? You know, and it was a magical place for me because it was a place where learning mattered, where creativity mattered, where music mattered, all these things that I loved and these fantastical stories, these enormous foundational metaphors for all of life. So it was someplace I felt the magic in life. And at 14, I got arrested for shoplifting Bob Dylan albums from Target with the guys in my band. Yeah, yeah. At least I had good taste. (laughs) I was playing drums in a rock band. It was ninth grade. I was smoking weed every day in school. And I had kind of lost my way. And when I got arrested for shoplifting, it it awakened my parents to the fact that they had a fourth child and a fifth (laughs) and that they should probably pay some attention. So they made the decision. They went to see Rabbi Max Shapiro, said, Steve's a good kid. He's just bored. Change his peer group. It'll be all right. So they sent me to this Jewish summer camp, Conemowoc, Wisconsin. And Larry, from the moment I stepped off the bus, I was in love with everything about it. Wow. I loved it all. The music, all the counselors were like hippies from the 60s who loved the music I loved. There were all these like pretty girls from Chicago with flowers in their hair on the on Shabbat, <laughs> you know. And I grew up in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. Chicago was like Paris, you know, sure. for, to yeah, me. Big town. And the rabbis. It was the first time in my life that I had seen a rabbi in shorts and a t-shirt who could throw a baseball. <laughs> I had no idea that rabbis could be normal people and possessors of this kind of magical, meaningful wisdom in life. I had no idea because my rabbis at home were old and scary and kind of greasy haired, gnarly tooth, scary guys. So to be honest, I don't think I ever looked back after that. I spent my whole summer there. The next summer I went on a youth trip to Israel. Then I became the president of this youth thing and the president of that youth thing. And Now, I went to college. I studied writing at Northwestern University, but I knew I wanted to be a rabbi. But I also knew that I had a talent for words and writing and storytelling, and that I wanted to hone that talent because it would be so useful 
in the rabbit. And you only had a very narrow field to get into what you wanted to do, because if it wasn't leader brothers or leader brothers. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> that was it. I only had two choices. And my dad, when I first told him I was going to go to rabbinical school, he said to me, you know, because you've read my book, my dad was a pretty harsh guy, also an amazing guy, but very harsh and blunt. And when I said I'm going to apply to rabbinical school, his first response was rabbis are beggars. Why would you do that? And eventually, of course, he came around because he could never in his world imagine the kind of rabbi that I became and am still becoming. But in the moment, he was not thrilled with the choice. Right. So I've had this feeling of immediate, inexplicable love three times in my life. And I've led with my heart each of those three times. And it's been spot on each of those three times. The first time was when I stepped off that bus at that summer camp. The second time was when I first saw my now wife of 36 years, Betsy. I mean, literally first saw her. I was done. We got engaged on our second date. Wow. And the third time was when I walked into the great sanctuary of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, and I just knew I want to work this room. (laughs) So let's talk about that for a second. So how did you get to that point to become the rabbi of the Wilshire Boulevard Temple? And just for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, give them some sense of the size and the scope of that congregation there that you lead. First, how did I end up there? Graduating or being ordained from uh, the seminary is not unlike graduating law school in terms of the hiring process. So All the synagogues from across the country that want to hire a young associate come to the campus. They interview everyone. And then you're offered something or not called a callback, where then they fly you out to the particular place and they get a better look at you and you get a better look at them. And then there was like a three-day period when they had to tender offers. It was a very complicated system. But the bottom line is I flew around to a bunch of places, but I liked Wilshire Boulevard Temple the best. Now, why? Not because it was in Los Angeles, not because it was prestigious, but I loved the sanctuary because I thought it was emblematic of the values of excellence that the place I held and that I suspected the place held, that whatever we do, we're going to do it with real excellence and we're going to stretch. I also felt that the senior rabbi at the time, great guy named Harvey Fields, was the one who would teach me the most in the first five years. It had nothing to do with Los Angeles at all. And so basically I flew around, I got these offers and Wilshire wanted me and I wanted Wilshire. So I came as a young associate. I was 26 years old when they hired me. I knew nothing. (laughs) It was a match though. (laughs) Yes, it was a match. (laughs) And I have spent my entire career there. I'm now 61 years old. I've been there 35 years. And I didn't start as the senior rabbi. I started as the fourth rabbi and kind of outlasted everyone. And when I started, it was not what it is today. It was a large synagogue, but it had one campus and a Sunday school and two sleepaway camps in Malibu. That was it. The whole senior staff was maybe five or six people. Now we have three campuses, 2,700 families, three religious schools, three early childhood centers, and two private elementary schools, and the sleepaway camps in a conference center and a social services center that we run in our downtown campus in Koreatown, where we provide free dental care, vision care, legal aid, mental health services, and food security in Korean, Spanish, and English. This past year, we fed 150,000 people. Amazing. And we just opened, well, 
got our certificate of occupancy and in January opening a gathering place, an event space and center directly adjacent to the great historic sanctuary on Wilshire that was designed by Rem Coolhouse and Shohei Ishigamatsu was just in Architectural Digest as I think the greatest piece of contemporary architecture of any religious institution in America right now. I mean, it's really special. So the order of magnitude has changed quite a bit mm. since I started. I became the senior rabbi in 2003. And we have our problems, of course, like all institutions, but I'm very proud of the fact that our problems are all related to growth. Right. Which if you have to choose growth or diminution, I'll take growth every time. Any day of the week. That's so let's right. let's talk about that for a second. You know, what's the mindset needed to lead a congregation of that size and scope that spans such a large area? There are a few things. First of all, I think you have to be the one who is willing to fail in order to succeed. I know that sounds pretty facile, but most rabbis, most people want to be liked. They don't want to be wrong. They don't want to fail. And I'm willing to fail at things because they're too ambitious. I'm willing to do that. And I think that's extremely important. I'm a really good storyteller. And I think that to lead, you have to be a really good storyteller. I don't care what your business is. I don't care if you're in the junk business, if you're an attorney, if you're a politician, if you manufacture donut boxes, I don't care what you do. You have to be able to tell your story in a compelling and accessible and powerful way. So I think that's the next thing. And I would say the third differentiator is that obviously we're in a major American city with a lot of enormously brilliant and successful people. So I have always looked outside of the synagogue and Jewish world for ideas rather than inside. I have never worried about being different than other synagogues. I don't care what other synagogues do. And I really don't. And I'm not well liked by some for that very reason. But I am much more interested in what are the presidents of universities thinking about and doing? What are the patrons of the art museum and the symphony doing? What's the guy? We have a member of the congregation whose family owns a professional football franchise and a professional soccer franchise. I'm interested in how they handled their season ticketers, right? Sure. Not how other synagogues handle their major donors. So I have never really feared not being the smart guy in the room. I've never feared reaching out. In fact, I love that part of my job. I get to sit with these titans and ask for their advice about my business, if I could put it that way. And they're happy to do it and they're brilliant. So it's the brain trust around me and the willingness to engage that brain trust that has made a huge difference in our success. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, everything that you described, right, is indicative of what any business owner, leader, leader really should be following. These are all simple ideas that can be replicated and utilized as examples for business owners yeah. taking in ideas from outside areas and not fearing to fail and taking risks. I think also the power of no. Mm-hmm. No, we're not going to do that. No, right. that's off mission. No, I don't care if other people think we should or are. Because this is another sort of facile thing. Most of my writing has been about overcoming adversity and pain. And I've learned that behind every no is a yes, right? When you say no to something that's off mission, you're simultaneously saying yes 
to the time and energy and resources to do something that's on mission. Absolutely. So I think that the power of no is an extremely important aspect of leadership. It's as important as the power of yes. Agreed. Agreed. So I got to ask you, what were your thoughts, pivot for a second, when Newsweek magazine named you one of the 10 most influential rabbis in America? What was going through your mind at that point? Well, I'll tell you what made me proud of it. What made me proud of it is that I have never followed the traditional path of large congregational rabbis, of rabbis of large congregations, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) And I pulled our synagogue out of the national movement that we were a part of. It was very controversial. We're the only three campus place with schools and camps and all of that. And what I was proud of is that I got there by being myself and I couldn't have done it any other way. By being myself, Larry, I could easily have been the least most influential rabbi in America. (laughs) Seriously. Right. I could have made that list and I wouldn't have cared. And I was proud that I made this list, but honestly, it's not why I did it. Sure. It's just who I am. Understood. Understood. So I want to pivot again for a minute. So you've come to a point right now where you've been vocal and apologizing for how you serve people before you had this painful experience about five years ago. So to give people and our listeners a little bit of context before we go into the apologies, can you share the experience and what brought you to the realization and where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I had been a rabbi for about 30 years and had helped more than a thousand families through the death of a loved one during those 30 years and helped thousands more through other painful kinds of deaths. You know, there are many painful deaths, the death of a reputation, the death of a marriage, a double mastectomy is a, is a kind of death. Sure. The death of your public and private reputation. I've seen people through all of these kinds of things. And I thought I was doing a pretty good job helping people through loss. I even, on my 30th anniversary as a rabbi on that pulpit, gave a sermon about the 10 things that I had come to learn about life by seeing people through so much loss and death. And I thought it was (laughs) sage-like, this sermon. Sage-like. The distillate of three decades of a front row seat to life. Sure. Sure. So I gave that sermon, and then one year later, to the day of that sermon, this is still hard for me, I, we buried my father in Minneapolis, where I grew up, after a 10-year journey with him through Alzheimer's disease. And I realized in that experience of being Steve Leader the son, how little Steve Leader the rabbi actually knew about loss and about death. I realized how much he thought he knew, but how little I actually knew. So I wrote this book called The Beauty of What Remains as a kind of apology to all those people over all those years, having done my best. And look, I don't think I was horrible at it, but I wanted to apologize and set the record straight for the things that I thought were 100% right, that were, as I put in the introduction, just shy of the deepest truth. And you know, there's this old Yiddish expression, a half truth is a whole lie, right? (laughs) If it's not, (laughs) and I felt like I had been telling half truths for 30 years. And then my father died. 
And, and I had to deal with the duality and the dichotomous tension between the rabbi and the son. And I learned so much in that journey that I wanted to set the record straight. And we can get into sort of the major things that I reassessed, but that's the backstory to the book. And the book is ultimately about these dualities that we all face. Sure. You're a professional and you're a son. You're a professional and you're a spouse. You're a professional and you're a child. We love our parents. We hate our parents. We love our parents. We hate our parents. <laughs> our kids love us. Our kids hate us. Our kids love us. Our kids hate us, right? We want to keep them. We want to let them go. We want to make money. We, we don't want to work anymore. Life is about these dualities, some of which are very deep. And if we can unearth them and make peace with them, it gives us a more beautiful and more meaningful life. And that's really what the exploration is all about. Yeah, and I think, listen, uh, again, uh, sorry for your loss, and it's interesting, and I think it's very telling that after experiencing it, that it says a lot about you uh, as a person, as a leader, that you're willing to come out and say, hey, I did my best. I did it with all the best intentions, but at the same time, I did some things that maybe weren't on par with the way it should be after I went through my own experience, right? That's, yeah. That's and right. it's interesting to hear you today and how you've talked about people having to earn forgiveness, right? And what tips do you have for somebody who may be in a similar situation where they've given advice or counsel and they did the best they could, but now they want to earn forgiveness because they might not have given it in the best possible light. Yeah. What tips do you have somebody who wants to earn that forgiveness? And I think we also have to talk about the other side of the equation, the person being asked for forgiveness. How do they handle those situations? Well, first of all, there are intentional and unintentional transgressions, right? And I think there's a difference in forgiveness, granting forgiveness for something unintentional versus something intentional. Okay, But nevertheless, the dynamics, in my view, work in the following way. To get started, for me and for all of us, one has to be willing to say the three most difficult words for human beings to say. By the way, those three words are not, I am sorry. Because we all know, okay, especially any of us who are married, that I am sorry has a lot of latitude, right? There's a lot of wiggle room in I am sorry, right? And this is true with political apologies on the news, etc. There's a lot of, you know, if I hurt someone, I am sorry. I'm sorry if people feel that I might have. There's a lot of bullshit in it. I am sorry. The three most difficult words for most people to say are, I was wrong. I was wrong. That is a much greater degree of culpability and responsibility. You're taking, you're claiming it, you're owning it. And it has to be said out loud. To say to oneself, I was wrong about that. I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't been there. It means nothing, really. It has to be verbalized. It has to be owned out loud. So the first step is say it out loud. This is what I did. This is what I said. This is what I thought. Larry, I was wrong. I mean, the first step, of course, is to stop the behavior. But then you've got to say, Larry, I was wrong. I was wrong. And then the next three words, please forgive me. And then four words, it won't happen again. And you have to create scaffolding around 
whatever it is, your addiction, your bad habit, whatever it is, you have to create scaffolding around yourself so that you can look the other person in the eye and say with integrity and honesty, it will never happen again. Now, if you go through those steps, stop the behavior, confess out loud, I was wrong, seek forgiveness, please forgive me, and create this scaffolding. I'm going to meetings five days a week or whatever it is. I hit someone in a crosswalk texting. I'm locking my cell phone in the glove compartment every time I get in the car now. Whatever it is, when you create this scaffolding and you can say it will never happen again, then you merit forgiveness. Now, what about the offended party? There's something very interesting that Talmud says. It says, if a person has gone through these steps and sincerely seeks your forgiveness three times and you withhold forgiveness three times, the sin is now on you, mm-hmm. not the perpetrator, because you are choosing to remain vengeful. And that's like swallowing poison and expecting it to kill someone else. Right. Forgiveness is always more beneficial to the one who's forgiving than the one being forgiven. Now, here's where a lot of people also trip themselves up. They'll say, oh, but do you know what she did to me? Do you know what he said? Do you know what he tried to do? And I often find that when people say to me, Rabbi, I I can't forgive her, what they're really saying is, I can't forget. They confuse forgiveness Mm -hmm. with amnesia. Forgiveness does not require amnesia of us. Quite the contrary. How does one forget something like that? You can't. That's not a reasonable aspiration. But you can forgive. Sure. They're different. And when most people say, I can't forgive, what they're really saying is, I can't forget. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not asking you to forget. I'm asking you to accept my sincere apology, recognition, apology, and the way I've changed my life. Amazing. I think that's a lot of great advice. And I think that works in business and personal life. It could work wholeheartedly in all aspects. Yes. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, we talk about often on this show, and you've been very vocal about your own personal struggle. You may or may not know, just to give you a little background, I sit on the national board for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I lost my brother-in-law in 2004. He died by suicide. And my wife and I have become huge, staunch advocates of mental health and raising awareness, bringing it out of the darkness. And the strives that we've seen in the last 17 years since his passing have been tremendous. Sometimes we even think to some degree, We wonder if he was still here, if things would have gone differently, because he had a very tough time identifying with actually getting help and seeing people get well and push through their own struggles to the other side. So first, why did you decide to come out and share your personal struggle with mental health? What was the impetus there? Well, again, it had to do, and I'll give you the background story of what sort of unleashed the panic, but it had to do once again with what Steve Leader, the rabbi, thought he knew, but Steve Leader, the human being, discovered was inaccurate. And why have a public platform if you're not going to use it to better people's lives? I mean, what is the point of it if not to better people's lives? Sure. Right? So what happened was, first of all, I have had an underlying anxiety disorder my entire life, because I grew up in a house 
with a sense of doom around every corner. I grew up with a scary dad. He used to say things like, when I hit, I break bones, you know, to little kids. Right. My dad hid gold coins under the false bottom of a cabinet and buried under it near a tree in the backyard. And whenever I'd come home from college, he'd say, now listen, come with me outside. Under that tree, There's I buried some gold coins. If God forbid we ever have to buy bread, right? Like the Nazis were coming tomorrow or the Cossacks. Right. So I grew up in this very doom-filled, risk-averse home. And I learned, obviously, I started working when I was five years old at the junkyard, and I was pretty much only valued for how hard I could work. If you weren't working, you were useless in my world as a kid. So that's how I approached everything in my life. I outworked everyone all the time. People ask me about my success as a rabbi. I know other rabbis had higher SAT scores. I know other rabbis can translate Talmud better than I can, but I honestly don't know a single one who outworks me. And this is the trap, right? So I used workaholism to subordinate my anxiety. As long as I was working, I wasn't going to get fired the next day, and I wasn't going to go broke, and all of these fears that I had. Right. Of course, this is the trap of mental illness, right? The very thing that subordinates the illness exacerbates the illness. Sure. Okay, yeah. so you're, it's a trap. The it's thing back to that, your duality. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. The thing that saves you is the thing that enslaves you. Right. Right? So I became a very successful rabbi, right? At least according to Newsweek. <laughs> and how did I do it? I did it by a brutal, brutal work ethic. I was always working. My wife said to me not long ago after my anxiety, I came out about the anxiety and got treatment. She said, you were always working or sleeping. I was a single parent. And that hurt. Right. But that was my strategy, okay? That's how I kept the demons locked in the basement of my psyche. Now, what happened is, in January, first of all, it was the collective weight of guiding this big institution and all these people through COVID. All those funerals, all the collective anxiety in our society, the racial tension, people coming to me because they were suddenly broke and out of a job and their kids were out of a job and I was running a mental health clinic from my home office over Zoom, having to raise a bunch of money to keep the whole place afloat. So there was that. And then what happened, Larry, was, uh, and I don't want to get too into the details, but I will say this much. I had made a choice to help someone privately who I believed deserved forgiveness and another chance. And the way in which I helped that person became very public overnight published in the newspapers overnight, on MSNBC overnight. And I started getting texts and emails from members of my congregation whom I'd known for 30, 35 years, who might help through their own misery. And they wanted my head on a platter. And I thought I was going to be canceled by my own community, Hmm. that the board of trustees was going to get us a petition with 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 signatures saying, uh, you know, the rabbi's immoral. How could he stand up for such a person? We want his head on a platter. Now, of course, that didn't happen, but I catastrophized it in that way. And these two experiences combined flung open the basement door of my psyche and and paralyzing, and I mean paralyzing anxiety, rushed from the basement up into my conscious life. I lost 10 pounds. I couldn't sleep. I imagined all these terrible things happening getting canceled. The IRS was going to come get me and 
on and on and on. And it forced me to get help. And I saw a very talented, I, first of all, I've been seeing a very talented psychiatrist for the past five years after a, a car accident that I was in and I had to have spinal surgery and just getting help with all of those fears of mm-hmm. mortality. But then I said, finally said to the psychiatrist, I said, listen, I, I'm paralyzed. I think we need to explore medication. And he kind of gave me this look like, well, well, it's about time. <laughs> you know, they never lead you. Right. They welcome you. They don't lead you. Right. So I started taking Zoloft. And after a couple of months of 125 milligrams of Zoloft, someone asked me one day, like, Steve, how are you? I said, great. And I went like, great. Who's, <laughs> Who's that guy? guy? Yeah. Yeah. You're what? <laughs> but I felt great. And because... It just lowered the volume on the catastrophic thinking and the anxiety. And now, now, Larry, I have worries, not panics. Right. right? I Manageable. worry. I don't panic. I well, you're worry. Jewish. We have to worry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, you know what <laughs> that I That never say. goes away. No, no. Come on. I, I say a sad Jew is a happy Jew. <laughs> <laughs> that can never go away. Yeah, yeah. You want to hear a great joke about that? Yeah, sure. Okay. So the Jewish pessimist says, oh, my God, things could not be worse. And the Jewish optimist says, of course they could. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's funny. Anyway, so that's what happened. And I came out about it. I came out about it. I went on the Today Show and talked about it. I gave a High Holy Day sermon about it to my congregation. I said, I have it. A lot of people have it. You don't have to live this way. We can change. It was really a sermon about change. Right. You don't have to suffer. You can change. The world might not change. Our problems are no different than people's problems 2,000 years ago. They're not. In fact, they're less so in most cases. Life 2,000 years ago was far more anxious than life is today. I don't care who you are, okay? The world doesn't change. The human experience can change. And there's a stigma, as you know from your work with your wife in this field, there's a stigma about medication for mental health. But you know what? I'm wearing glasses because my right. vision's not 2020. Nobody cares. I need Are you going to not take radiation or chemotherapy because you have an aggressive cancer? I mean, Or insulin? Right. Because you have right. diabetes? Or right. an aspirin because you have a headache? Like Same. One of the things I tell people now is store-bought is fine. <laughs> Get over right. it. Listen, I equate it. I lost my mom to cancer at a very young age. We mm. lost her at age 47. She had mm. a, probably about a 12 or 13-year battle Ugh, with cancer. Sorry. And this was a long time ago, and people laugh when I tell them this, but she had friends, good friends, that when she came down with cancer, there weren't many, there were a couple in particular, that kind of stopped hanging out with her. Yeah. And it like was it almost was contagious. Like, right, right. Yeah. Like it was contagious. And when yes. I tell people that, they look at me like, what are you talking about? Cancer's not contagious. That's kind of where mental health is. Or I think we made some strides there, but maybe even closer to when we lost my brother-in-law, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it was certainly there. I, yes. I don't want to be around a guy like this or a gal like this. It's crazy. So my point is we made a lot of strides with cancer because if you told somebody that somebody acted that way today, they'd be like, what are you nuts? And I think we're moving in that direction with mental health and hopefully knocking down some of that I, stigma and hammering it away. I needed a thousand more emails like a hole in the head, right? <laughs> but I did it because I agree with you. We have to make progress and destigmatize and prioritize mental health. 
Agreed. Because life is more beautiful when your brain chemistry enables you to absorb and embrace that beauty. Yep. Yeah. You got to work. So it's been wonderful to, even today and some of your other talks, hearing you talk about why suffering's transformative and can lead to a deeper, richer life experience. And as I've shared with you, I'm someone who has experienced loss very early in my life. My mom passed away the day after my 23rd birthday. We lost my brother-in-law at an early age. Could you share your thoughts about how suffering does transform us? What, how does that work? What does it do to us? Let's start with, I think, something very important, which is in no way am I proposing that suffering is worth what we learn from it. You give everything you learn from your mother's death, you'd give it all up to have her back. 100%. Right. So I'm not saying that any of this is worth it. Right. I'm merely saying it's not worth less. If you have to go through hell, and we all do, you don't have to come out empty-handed, right? Agreed. You can take something from it to ennoble your life. Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. I think that's such a powerful idea. Yeah. Can you be worthy of the suffering you've endured? Well, I'll just share with you. I mean, one big takeaway that left an imprint on me because of these experiences are that when my kids were young and even to today and my family, they're first and foremost to me. Yeah. I put them first. I used to take off Fridays in the summer to spend time with them. My office is seven miles from the house. So there were things that I put in place because, okay, I went through this experience. Yes. So I wanted to make sure that if something were to happen to me, that I spent as much time as I possibly could with them. The loss of your mother at 23 taught you something that it takes most people a lot longer to learn, which is it's not what we have, but who we have. Right. That matters. Right. And you changed your life accordingly. That's given you a more beautiful life despite your loss, despite the amputation that was the death of your mother. Right. So these things can often make us more empathetic. I'll get religious on you just for a second here. There's a verse in the Bible that says God places God's words upon our hearts. And the sages ask a really interesting question. They say, well, why upon our hearts and not in our hearts? Certainly God has the power to place God's words in our hearts. Why on our hearts? And the answer they give is God puts God's words upon our hearts. And it isn't until our hearts are broken that the words can enter. Interesting. There's a degree of empathy and gratitude for life itself and for who we have and how precious time is and how precious love is. And that no matter how many times we hold and are held by the people we love, no matter how many times we say, I love you and are told we are loved, it's never enough. That comes only from pain and loss. I wish there was another way. I wish there was another way to grasp that depth of meaning and purpose in your life, but I haven't found it. Success doesn't teach us very much. No, failure. Failure is disruptive. Pain is disruptive, and it enables us to make really important changes. And again, it's not worth it. I'd gladly give up the book I wrote to have my father back. Sure. But I don't have that choice. Right. And so our only choice is whether, I think Dostoevsky put it so well, whether we're going to lead a life worthy of the suffering we've endured. You and your wife suffered through the death 
of your brother-in-law. Now, are you worthy of that suffering? Are you doing something worthy with that suffering? And in your case, the answer is yes. And that's what makes it bearable. Yeah. Listen, there's been a lot of suffering in the last 18 months or so with the pandemic. What do you think the past year plus, and it's obviously there's been an increase in anxiety level yeah. just from that and that oh, yes. alone. Yes. What's the big takeaway? What is the teaching moment to us as people that are going through this currently? Well, I think the big challenge is now that many of us have had our default settings changed in some very positive ways. When we emerge from our caves, hmm. will we go back to the previous default settings of our lives, the hurry and the scurry and the worry and the freeway and the breakfast, lunch, and dinner with people we don't care about and, 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 right? Are we going to hold on to what we've learned? Are we going to hold on to dinner with our family, to baking cookies with our kids, to Zooming instead of getting in the car and wasting an hour and a half? You know, I live in L.A., I am shocked and embarrassed by the amount of time pre-COVID I spent in a car getting someplace to be with someone that I could just have easily Zoomed with right? or who doesn't really matter much in the first place, right? I think that's a big part of it. The challenge is, can we hold on to it? Now, what do I think the big takeaways are? First of all, I think that COVID caused us all to question our sense of invulnerability. I think we all felt vulnerable Agreed. in a way we never have before. And that vulnerability is an important teacher about the preciousness of time and people and love yeah. and about the uh, silliness of things. I think it goes back to the suffering piece, right? If we don't take away and learn something from it, then what was the purpose of going through it, right? I'll give you an interesting sort of mind-bending example. It was sort of what I was saying earlier about every behind every no is a yes, right? Behind every no that COVID gave us. No, you can't go out. No, you can't do this. No. There were many yeses. Sure. Yes, yes, you can have a cup of tea under a blanket and watch Netflix. Yes, <laughs> you can bake bread. Yes, you can tend to your flower garden. Yes, you should be grateful that you have a roof over your head and food in your fridge because look at how many people don't, right? But I'm going to give you a kind of mind-bending way to think about COVID and to think about death and to think about loss. In Latin, this concept is called via negationis, by way of the negative. Now, in religious life, it's basically this idea that you can understand what God is by first deciding what God is not, via negationis, right. by what God is not, okay? God is not cruel. God is not capricious, right? But the way I think about this with COVID and with death and with loss is like a marble statue, okay? Call to mind now, Larry, the most beautiful marble statue you can recall seeing in a museum. Doesn't matter which one. And now consider how that statue began. It began as a solid block of marble. All that beauty was hiding within it. But in order for that beauty to be revealed, it took a talented sculptor. Not to add, but to remove right. chip by chip by chip until that beautiful thing remained. This is why I called the book The Beauty of What Remains. Mm -hmm. Because in the taking away, it's a stripping away of so much that isn't important, isn't beautiful, isn't meaningful, isn't fulfilling. And it leaves behind so much that is.
And so COVID I, has done that. It's done that for many of us. The question is, will it continue to do right. that? Will we stay with it? When we go back out in the world, I have a, a friend who's a very accomplished child psychiatrist in New York. And I asked him, I said, what's the tale of this thing going to be? And he said, well, first of all, everyone's coming out of this thing, either a hunk, a chunk, or a drunk. <laughs> right? Uh, We've coped either by right. endorphins eating, or working out or by yeah. eating and drinking. Yeah. Right? Agreed. Yeah. So we want to go back to some of our previous default settings, but I think we've also all come out of it understanding now that there's some beauty in the stripping away. There's power in the no. There's power in realizing we're vulnerable. Yeah. We need each other. I think those are some excellent takeaways, and I thank you for sharing that. Now, we're towards the end of the show here, Rabbi Leader. Okay. Because this is the Midland Money Mindset. We ask <laughs> each one of our guests the same question. Okay. We, we've had a great time. So what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? Two things. We have an 18-year-old dog who's deaf, blind, and has dementia. She's not physically suffering, but she's wow. very, very vulnerable. And she woke up around six o'clock this morning and I picked her up and cradled in my cradled her in my arms. I love this dog. And I took her downstairs and took her out and put her in front of her water dish and gave her her food and her medication. And then I just sat on the couch and I just held her in my arms because we know that she's not going to be alive much longer. And right. I just silently held this vulnerable, beautiful little toy poodle Amazing. we call Rosie. And I had things to do, but I didn't care. And the second thing I would say is I started on a task this morning that I've been putting off for two weeks, which is to review the final edits of the manuscript of my next book that's coming out in June. And it's tedious. It's commas and dashes and right. it's tedious. And I've been putting it off and putting it off, but I finally put my butt in the chair and I started on it today. And so I felt good about that. Well, uh, I guess Rosie gave you the motivation to sit down and get that knocked out. She did. That's right. That is awesome. Well, listen, Rabbi Leader, it's been great having you on. I, I shared some great insights with our listeners, some excellent ideas and takeaways that can be implemented in both personal life, business, just anywhere really in life, period. Yeah. And we'll have all of your contact information in the show notes. But if people want to find you, connect to you, what's the best way for them to do that? I think the best way is Instagram, which is the only one I really sort of pay any attention to. And it's at Steve underscore leader, L-E-D-E-R. And that's probably the easiest way. Or, or of course, the Wilshire Boulevard Temple website is another way. Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for your time. And remember, make it a great day. Thank you, Larry. Awesome to be with you. I want to thank Rabbi Steve Leader for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Rabbi Leader has taken his own personal life events and used them to make him a better rabbi, person, and human being. He understands the importance of good mental health and breaking down the barriers of the stigma that surrounds it so people can get the help they need. Sharing his own personal story has helped countless others seek the help that they need. Rabbi Leader can be found across all social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find him can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. 
We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.